how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. On her very first day on set, Dennis Goulet knew she wanted to be a filmmaker. As she transitioned from casting to head of film festival in Toronto, she eventually saw a potential path to making her own shorts, where she eventually made Spin, Divided by Zero, Wapawika, and Barefoot. Her first full feature as the writer-director, Night Raiders, has a story that focuses on a mother who joins an underground band of vigilantes to try and rescue her daughter from a state-run institution. In this interview, the writer-director talks about approaching films as experiments, failures and successes while making shorts, how she used history to write a futuristic film, and her thoughts on being an indigenous storyteller. I was living in Saskatchewan, where I'm from, which is the Midwest of Canada, and I had just come back from traveling, and... Um, Saskatchewan just opened up a tax credit and so a production came into town and I just randomly put my resume in randomly got hired and, and found myself working on a film set as an extras casting assistant and on day one I walked onto set I looked around and I was like this is it I got the bug I'm in <laughs> and then I started working in casting and then eventually moved out into Toronto and got in Involved in film festivals and filmmaking and started making my own shorts. It's interesting that filmmaking still kind of works that way. It hasn't really gone completely digital. It is kind of, you know, you can walk on like that. Were you overwhelmed at any point or what was it like transitioning to like higher and higher ranks, I guess you'd say? Yeah, I mean, I um, left, I, so I worked in casting for a while and then I left that to head a film festival in Toronto called Imaginative, which was an Indigenous film festival. And um, that opened my eyes up to what so many filmmakers were doing. And I think it really programming really informs what you end up doing as a filmmaker. And so then when I just started to make my own shorts in order to try to trick myself away from any pressure I might have felt, which I did feel, 
um, I would just sort of treat everything like a little experiment to sort of say, I'm going to do this and that, and then try a bit of this and see if it works. I don't really know if I can call myself a filmmaker, but I'm just going to do this. And I did it enough times that eventually I could call myself a filmmaker. <laughs> and then, um, and then the biggest experiment was, of course, my first feature, Night Raiders. Um, and by the time I got to that, it was incredibly ambitious and uh, a huge undertaking and definitely the biggest thing I'd ever done. Is, can you name some examples, maybe of those shorts where you were unsure of something, but it succeeded and maybe another one where you're unsure of something and it, it kind of failed in a way, like any examples like that? Yeah, so I shot this film a, a long time ago. I got a grant to do it and I did all the things you're supposed to do. I hired the crew and I went through all of the things and we had like 30 crew on set and I got my actors and I was all excited. Um, and it failed because I had written it to sort of be this comedy about this woman who's kind of grappling with identity things, but she ended up playing it fairly dramatically and so it comes across as being totally earnest when there's a lot of it that was meant to be a joke. And I realized, oh my goodness, I, if I want to direct comedy, I have to direct that differently. Like she was doing a really good performance and I just didn't know enough to know that like, oh, it's a good performance, but it's not what I need. <laughs> so that film failed. And then when I went to do the next one, which was a film called Wapawika, I threw all of that away and said, I don't know how it's supposed to be done, but I'm gonna go to my family's cabin in Northern Saskatchewan, shoot a film with my dad, my cousin and my uncle who have never been on screen before. And they're all gonna act in a scripted drama that I wrote. So I made them all act. We spent five days there. I finished the film as very small crew. It's almost more like a documentary, five people maybe. And then that film traveled to the Toronto International Film Festival, Sundance, Berlin. It was crazy. <laughs> um, so it's just, uh, it was a good, that one was an experiment that turned out. <laughs> did you write those characters like thinking about your family members? Did you write it specifically for them? So it wasn't much of, much of a stretch or how did you kind of think about some of that part? Yeah, absolutely. Although I, I do, I did write them to be slightly different than who they truly are. Like the, my dad was playing a character that's much quieter and introspective than he is because he's actually quite chatty. Um, and then my cousin was playing his son. So it wasn't that like the relationship was different in real life. And my son or my cousin was a rapper. And so he was pretty much just playing himself. <laughs> Let's talk about your new film. Where did this idea come from? Kind of what was the initial concept that you're, you're okay talking about without giving away spoilers and that, those type of things? Yeah, so um, it, Night Raiders is set in the year 2043, and it imagines that children are property of the state. And even though it's an imaginary future, everything in it is based on real historical policies that were inflicted upon Indigenous people in Canada, and I would also say in the US. Um, and so I knew I wanted to talk about the impact of colonization and some of the policies that were put in place to colonize the indigenous people of the Americas. And one of the biggest ones um, was the residential school system. So that was a child removal policy that was in um, Canadian law for seven generations of indigenous families. So it had a huge and profound effect. Um, and so I knew I wanted to talk about that 
But at the time I just made my first um, sci-fi movie that was kind of like this monster movie set in a dystopian future. And there was something about going into the near future that just created a little bit enough of a distance um, to kind of like just recreate everything that was real, but just like in a different context. And it opened up a kind of freedom um, for me to, to like say in, you know, to hopefully um, explore the impact of it once you put all of these things together in one place and time. Um, and so, yeah, I just found the genre really freeing. And so I knew that I would keep Night Raiders in the dystopian space. Do you have kind of a revolving door of like research phase, writing phase, director phase? Like, how do you think about the different processes? Do you bounce back and forth as you're making a film like this? I have a hard time bouncing around. Um, I would say I'm not the best multitasker. I really get tunnel vision when I um, start projects. So I find it hard um, to have a slate of different things because I find that the writing process is so different than production. And it's also so different from post-production. So the writing, and then also there's a publicity piece too for the film. And that is also very different, almost the opposite of writing, which is really introspective. So I know most people and really successful people like bump you know have like all these things going on at once but um I think because Night Raiders was such a huge undertaking for me I had a really hard time um through production and post like really thinking about writing or doing anything else and when I was in development on the film I was also programming for the Toronto Film Festival and so um that took up sort of half of my year and then the other half of my year I would dedicate to writing what did your research like this look like? So I know like when the movie Minority Report came out years ago, it was set about 50 years ahead. So there was some scientific data to look at. So did you do kind of a similar phase with this in terms of like what might they use with drone technology and those type of things? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, ours is a, a near future. It's not very far away. So right. we weren't you know, there's there's nothing in it that is so fantastical that it's outside of our imagination. But I certainly did research into drones and all of that technology. I also did research into um, far right um, uprisings in history, like certainly Hitler and World War Two and the types of structures that are put in place when there's a hostile takeover of, um, of a place. Cause this Night Raiders imagines a post-Civil War North America. So I looked at it, peace treaties that are signed in post-war periods. I looked at, um, yeah, again, far right uprising. I did research into the Tea Party in the United States. Um, I started writing this in 2013. And so um, Trump was not yet on the scene but I was thinking a lot about the changing demographics of the world. And I thought, I think there's going to be a white backlash coming. And that was a part of sort of the um, imagining of the uprising of what are called the jingos in the world of Night Raiders. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I did, I did tons of that kind of research. And then I created um, a fake timeline 30 years into the future that determined exactly what happened at every election, what the result of the election was, and then what happened after, and, and, um, and also that uh, when the war happened and then what happened in the aftermath of the war. 
Does any of that get overwhelming to where it's difficult to also focus on individual characters or how do you kind of um, just put that to the side to also focus about real emotions within everything that's going on in this world building? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the world building is a, is a kind of a different thing. It's like, I think I started with the world building in a way. And I, I al always knew I had these two characters, Niska and Wasis, but I felt so close to them in a way. So then I turned my attention to world building because I felt like that was really important. So after I had that sketch of like a 30 year time period, then I went back and started to sketch when Niska was born in that timeline, when Wasis was born, you know, like Wasis was born in the post-war period. So she never saw war, but Niska did and how that would have shaped the character and how that might inform kind of the types of behavior that are based on the trauma from the war. Um, and so, yeah, and then I just, I dug in and did a backstory to, to the characters that was placed within the created world timeline. Um, but, you know, what the characters were grappling with was something that to me was very real, you know, and this is something that happened in indigenous families um, and the last residential school only closed in 1996. So it's like this happened to our aunties, our uncles, our grandparents, sometimes our parents. Um, so these, the, you know, the emotionality and also the connection between a mother and daughter, which is so fundamental. I mean, to me, that's the heart of the movie. And then the world building and all of that is like the container that you place everything in. Did it feel like um, today is the best time to get this story made? Meaning like, would you have been able, I know you're writing this in 2013, would you have been able to make this years ago? Like, is, is there something different happening with the types of movies being made today? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know that I would have got it made. Um, I actually got turned down for funding um, because someone thought the allegory wasn't relevant. Um, and, you know, I think also, you know, because I am definitely delving into indigenous life and issues, but I'm doing that in a genre space. And I think that combination of those things, you know, people weren't really sure how to receive that and whether or not it would work. Um, so I think what really helped everyone um, was when Get Out came into the world, Jordan Peele's horror movie, because it set an example to say, hey, I can talk about things that are political and that I can talk about whiteness. I can address all of this and I'm going to do it in like a crazy horror movie that's really enjoyable for the audience to watch. And so there were different ways into these things that you want to talk about, but the market needed to see that there was a hunger for it. And so us being out there making the case for these kinds of things had been pretty difficult. And then I feel like the world opened up a bit. And then also up in Canada, there was a political moment happening that was based on decades of advocacy where we were seeing more doors open. And so I think even three years earlier, I don't know that I would have gotten the budget for Night Raiders that, um, that I got when we eventually went into production. What advice might you give to young people, young minorities, filmmakers trying to make something like this today? Does it, it seems like what Jordan Peele is doing is leaning into genre and that's kind of what you're doing, but with sci-fi as opposed to horror, is that something you'd recommend? Um, how does that kind of play out in pitch meetings and those type of things? Yeah, I would say to young filmmakers, like just do what, what, you know, you're into and what you're passionate about. Um, 
I discovered genre as like I grew up on genre film. I love genre. To me, the film Children of Men was a total touchstone for me. I love that film. I love The Matrix when it came out. But for some reason, I didn't see myself as a genre filmmaker. And it wasn't until I was given this opportunity where I just thought, why not? Again, treating your films like an experiment. Just say, I don't know. I'm going to try this. It might just flop and I have no idea. But when I did, it was so eye-opening and so amazing that it just like I it was something that I became really passionate about in terms of like a mode of storytelling. So I would say to to folks out there, you know, just follow your passions. Don't be afraid to fail at times. It happens to all of us on our journeys. Um, and take risks, you know, go in new directions that are unfamiliar to you. And I would say really importantly, find like-minded people. You really need that peer support of folks that are going to support what you're doing because the struggles in the industry are hard and long and you really need that support network um, to help you when times get tough. You feel like, is this film um, guiding you in a certain direction with what you plan to make next or, or like, where are you kind of thinking about the future of things? Are you going to keep experimenting and keep moving to what, you know, how are you kind of thinking about um, the way people are maybe going to see you now as a specific type of filmmaker? Yeah, I'm, I sort of feel like I always am drawn to the story first, what the story is trying to say. And then um, that the story determines what it wants to be. So I've got an idea for a new film. It's like set in Northern Saskatchewan in my hometown in the fifties. And it's like, it, so, and it's about, it's about a group of young girls and I'm still in early development, but I kind of think like, as I start to do the research and as I start talking to the people in the community, the film is going to tell me what it wants to be. And I will just be in service to that. So maybe it'll be another genre film um, or maybe it won't. It'll just be a drama, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm happy to go where it takes me. So I like talking uh, obviously about people's successes, but I also like to know kind of the, the iceberg effect. You've already mentioned a lot of shorts you made. What are some of the things that people might not see? Like, do you have a, a pile of scripts in a drawer somewhere? And, and some of those things as you got to this level. Yeah, I mean, there's a pile of scrappy ideas that never got, you know, made. Uh, there's, yeah, you know, there's, I've got, I mean, we have grants up here in Canada. So I have a whole bunch of like written grant proposals for things that kind of never saw the light of day. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, for everything that gets made, I, I'm sure there's tons of stuff that is just, you know, and maybe they'll come back too, you know, like maybe you find a way, new way into it and then it surprises you and it's ready to be told. Is there any particular thing you do when you get to a point as a writer and you're particularly struggling with something like how do you get past a scene that doesn't work or a character that doesn't work? Um, it's really hard to do because I think I feel as though I want to keep hammering at it, but sometimes you really need to walk away and it's, a mad, it's amazing what a walk will do or clearing your head, or actually sometimes you need to put it down for even longer. Um, some of the most amazing times that I've had with writing is like, you put it aside and it's really hard because you just want to despair that it's not getting anywhere and you don't know what the fix is, <laughs> which is easy to do. Um, but when you come back to it, um, yeah, like there, it, there's just... It, 
yeah, you just need to keep finding ways to trick yourself to see it, it fresh and to see it new. And sometimes space does that really well. Were there any like false beliefs or misconceptions you had about the industry before you got in? What were some of those things that you believe totally differently today? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I, uh, when I started out, I was, um, on this indigenous film set and it was an amazing experience. And then I moved to Toronto and got involved in Imaginative. And I was so surrounded by this incredible community that when I ended up leaving Imaginative and started making my own films, I was so shocked um, that not everybody out there was as like supportive and generous and um, incredible as like the little community that we had built. And it was a really, rude awakening and it really required that I learn how to put on my fighting armor and I don't like you know it's like when you really learn to make a case for something you really learn to argue it because I just assumed like oh yeah of course people will get why this is important or why we need to do this and it's like oh no it wasn't just that they didn't get it sometimes they would outrightly oppose it and then it's like, you're, it, yeah, you're in a totally different scenario. And so you have to learn how to really um, sharpen arguments and start to get really articulate about what matters to you and why, whether it's advocacy for your community or arguing, you know, back to a call about notes on your script, for example. You mentioned a lot about support and community and those type of things. Are there things you're actively doing now that you're kind of rising in the ranks to bring people um, maybe lower than you up and those type of things? Like, how are you thinking about spreading that positivity and those type of things? Yeah, I mean, part of why it took me such a long time to make my first feature, you know, because it was there's quite a long time b- before my last short um, was made and. Uh, you know, it was because I was um, involved in a lot of advocacy work to make sure that like by the time I went to make my feature, I really didn't want to be the only one. No one wants to be the only one. So in terms of the support for my community, I advocated for a targeted funding stream at our major feature film funder in Canada that got created. And I also helped was with a group that argued for the creation of the Indigenous Screen Office, which is a body that now funds Indigenous film in Canada. And it came into being about three years ago. And so all of that has seen a huge proliferation of all kinds of Indigenous film that was not getting made. I co-authored a report about the lack of Indigenous feature film in Canada like five years ago. And the last thing that I wanted to do with my time was write a freaking research report. Like I'm a filmmaker. I do not do that. But um, I felt like it was really important that, you know, um, I think sometimes too in the film industry, directors and our careers are seen in such an, as such an individualistic endeavor or even the idea of the auteur. And, and to me, I just, came into film through this beautiful community. And I just felt like it was imperative to bring and support and help foster this community to get the opportunities and resources that they need um, to tell stories across the board in all kinds of genres. You get a lot of great advice already, but if you could kind of go back to maybe when you were making that short with your, your family members, if you could give yourself advice, what might you tell yourself back then? Oh boy. 
Yeah, I I think it's just so scary when you do those first few films. Um, it's more, maybe it's a trust the process kind of thing. Um, I made a, a short, like, and also when you're first starting out directing, it's like you really feel like you're going through motions without any idea of whether or not it's going to result in anything worthwhile. And um, I did this film called Barefoot after Wapawika that was shot with all Indigenous youth in Northern Saskatchewan. And we did a really rigorous um, rehearsal because they had none of them were actors. Um, and I just remember being terrified of being like, I have no idea if this is gonna work. And it's, um, and when we got to post-production, I cut the movie together and we got notes and everyone's like, yeah, the movie's totally flat. Like it doesn't do anything. And I was like, oh my God. And I remember being so kind of distraught. Like as much as I say, don't be afraid to fail. Like it's really hard. You know, you put all of your resources and people helped you do this thing and you want it to be good. And at that point, I didn't realize the, like, you know, the power of the edit actually to be a totally new rewrite to the film. So I would say that was one of the incredible lessons for me to understand how much power there is in, in editing and how the restructuring of something just completely changes the viewer's experience of it. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.